Good evening, everybody. How are we doing tonight? All right. I'm good. Thank you for asking. <laughs> we'll, see, uh, we'll see about that after these questions, right? Yeah. <laughs> there were some great questions that we're seeing. There really were. Yeah, really yeah. thoughtful questions. Yeah. So I wonder if we can get to them all. Man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I had to... I went to the restroom before we came out. I had to get some of that stress relief lotion to put on before I got <laughs> all these questions. That Wait, we, we have stress relief lotion? Stress relief lotion. All right, right give me five minutes. Five I'll be right back. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, uh, just to recap, these whole prophecy questions kind of came in unique. Some general questions, then some questions about Israel as it relates to prophecy, the mark of the beast, uh, the afterlife, and then the rapture. So. Really well covering the area. I think we're going to get some good questions answered here. And uh, man, I'm excited to jump into this. Let me just ask this. This, this, Maybe somebody's sitting out here watching or somebody's here for the first time and don't know what's going on. Obviously, this is a Q&A. We just finished a seven-week series on understanding Bible prophecy. Eight eight weeks. Eight weeks. Eight weeks. Yeah, sorry. Um, And I'm just curious. What, that person may be saying, what's the big deal about prophecy? Mm. What's the big deal with yeah. it? You know, what, you know, yeah. how, much, how much of your Bible is predictive prophecy? 40% of your Bible. So just, if it's not a big deal, just open your Bible, take 40% of the pages and just rip them out. Yeah. Okay? Because there was a president that tried to do some of I that. Think, <laughs> I think more than one. Yeah. But, <laughs> True. Uh, Good point. You know, God wouldn't put it in his word if it wasn't important. Absolutely. Doesn't mean we're going to understand everything, but I believe if it's in his word, he wants us to want to understand it. Agree. Right? Agree. Absolutely. And, and we're to teach, as a pastor, I'm, I'm part of my qualification is to teach the whole counsel Absolutely. of the word of God. Yep. And, you know, one of the verses I think that will get cited tonight, you know, uh, regarding the future, uh, Paul encourages uh, the Thessalonian church uh, about a future end times event. And he says, encourage one another with these words. Mm-hmm. And as we said last week, prophecy is not meant to scare you. It's meant to prepare you. Mm. Yep. So you're always better prepared if you know the book. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. Well, man, I'm so glad you're here, Pastor Scott, teaching us and correcting us when we get off track with the Word of God. You do a great job week in Thanks, and week buddy. out. And I know uh, everyone here is thankful for that as well, by their presence. So. Grateful to be here. So Amen. enough of that. Let's jump into their questions and okay. get to it. So first one, you mentioned that the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4 is the church. Mm. This question, can you please explain and, com- and include supporting scriptures of that statement? Yeah, I did say that, that uh, that's my interpretation. So John is transported in the spirit to heaven. Uh, the whole book of Revelation, a lot of it is what he witnesses. So he, he, is, he is revealed uh, what needs to be communicated to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, he's to write about what has been, what is, and what is to come. And so he is transported to heaven, and he witnesses things in heaven. And there he beholds, well, I'll just read it. So it's Revelation 4.4, 4, if you care to follow along. Uh, it says, around the throne, he sees a throne. We know whose throne that is. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And, and I said, and I believe this was last week, I said that represents the church. 
And here are a few reasons why. Um, use scripture, I think, was what the question said. So I'll, I'll use the context and I'll use some, some of the words. Scriptures, yep. mm-hmm. uh, the words that are used and I'll use logic and I'll use what we know from other passages. So the word used for elders is the word uh, presbyteros in the Greek. So, you know, we have some of those in this church. We've got some presbyteros. We have some elders. You know where you see that word? You see that word in the pastoral epistles. Paul tells Timothy about the offices within the church. There are to be elders. It's a biblical office. It's why we have them at Lamb's Chapel. And presbyteros is the word for elder. So it speaks of a human representative of the church body. So that is the word that is used right here. Never refers to the angels only refers to human beings that represent the church. There's 24 of them. 24 is the number of the priesthood. And a priesthood represents a greater body of people. You see them and they're wearing what color? White. White. Right. So who else wears white? Well, some might say, well, angels wear white. Uh, that's true. You do see angels depicted wearing white. That's typically when they appear to, to us on the earth. In heaven, they typically appear in their natural state. Okay, and so the white that they are wearing, these garments, indicate purity, righteousness. What is that a product of? Our salvation through Jesus Christ. What are they also wearing? They're wearing crowns. Folks, angels don't wear crowns. Mm -hmm. All right, so these are crowns, and they're not just any crown. It's a stephanos in the Greek. That's the victor's crown. It's what they give the person who runs the race wins. At the games, they give them the victor's crown, stephanos. So... I have run the race, I have finished the race, I fought the fight, right? Uh, I'm going to run the race in such a way that I might win, Paul says. Mm-hmm. So you, you, victors at the end of their race, they're, they're given a crown. We see many crowns throughout Scripture. Second uh, Timothy talks about the crown of righteousness that the Lord has laid up for me. James talks about uh, the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And so these are definitely people, could they be, some say, well, maybe it's Israel, not at this point in, in John's vision, Israel has not yet turned uh, to the Messiah that is still going to come uh, in, the, in the tribulation period. And so we also see one final thing is that they sing a song. And the song that they sing, the way that song ends is that you have made them a kingdom and priest. They say, uh, uh, for you were slain and by your blood your, you have ransomed people for God. It's a song of redemption. Amen. Folks, that's a song we're going to sing because yeah. we have been redeemed. All right? Amen. So that, though, that's the reason that I contend that these, these elders represent the church. You never see them until that moment right there, and I believe they're there because they've been called heavenward Amen. at that moment. Amen. So that's, that's the answer to that question. I awesome. Think. That's a great answer, and I'm ready to sing that song as well because maybe right. I'll have a better voice. You know, when I, in that moment, and I'll just sing loud, you know. My wife says I sing <laughs> Turn loud already. Turn this mic off again, That's would right. you? <laughs> That's right. So, all right, next general, these are just general questions we're kind of hitting on, kind of easing into it. Uh, you taught on the battle of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel mm-hmm. 38 and 39, and said it could happen before or at the very beginning of the tribu- tribulation. However, in Revelation 20, we see Gog and Magog gathered for battle at the end of the millennial reign, mm-hmm. which is it? This person question. Okay, so when we Great studied question. the Gog Magog invasions a couple weeks ago, you, remember, you guys remember? You didn't glaze over, did you? All right. So Gog and Magog, and we <coughs> talked about this invasion that's going to come into Israel. I went through a series of nations that are listed. This is found in Ezekiel 38, 39. 
these nations. I gave you the modern day equivalents of these nations. And so we talked about Russia. We talked about uh, all of the stands. Remember, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Afghanistan. We talked about uh, Iran. We talked about, uh, well, Persia would be Iran. We talked about Turkey, Ethiopia, Sudan, Tunisia. All right. All of them, most of them Arabic in addition to Russia, who's got other motivations, that sort of a thing. We saw what happens to them. And I did indicate, I said, I believe this is going to happen at least near the beginning of the tribulation, if not before. It even could happen prior to the rapture. There's no reason why it couldn't. So the problem is, uh, some of you, if you read ahead, you might have seen these names, Gog and Magog, where? At the end of Revelation after it's been describing the tribulation, and then you read about the millennial kingdom. So here, here's what that passage says, Revelation 20. And when the thousand years are ended, what's the thousand years? The millennial reign of Christ. Is that after the tribulation? Yeah. At the end of those thousand years, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. So if you read that, you're going, whoa, 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 hold the phone. What gives here? I thought that was all Gog and Magog was before. Here they are again. And it describes this battle. They're going to march up over the broad plains, surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and then fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast, Antichrist, and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what's the deal here? Short answer, these are two separate events. Okay, they both feature Gog and Magog, all right, which would be in regard to the geographic region of those nations, but they are two separate events, Uh, and I I can say that with confidence because there are differences between the ways that they are described. First of all, who who is a character that you see that figures into Revelation here? What's, What's the name that you see there? It says, at the end of the thousand years, who's going to come and deceive the nations? Satan. Was Satan mentioned in the other battle at all? Not by name. Seems like that'd be an important name for Ezekiel to mention. He wasn't there. And then at the end of this, he is thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? And so there's a difference there. He's a central character in this event. Another difference is, in Ezekiel, the attack comes from the north. Very clear about that. Here, it's the four Now, Gog and Magog, that's a central region, you know, kind of at the heart of this rebellion. But all of the unrighteous that gather come from all over the world. They number like the sea, like the sand in the sea, that is. In this one, the attack is leveled at, and it it says at the saints, the saints and the beloved city. Who is the focus of the attack in Ezekiel? Israel. Israel would not have been called the saints. That's not a word that you see in the Old Testament. The saints pertain to those who are in Christ. They're in Christ, all right? And so these would not be, this isn't the same entity, okay? The saints and the beloved city. Uh, Israel has not turned to Christ in Ezekiel at the point of that invasion. In fact, the purpose of the invasion of Ezekiel is to begin to turn their hearts toward their Messiah. With this invasion... Their hearts have belonged to Jesus for the last thousand years. So that's a big difference. Uh, I would also want to add one more thing. So at the end of the Gog-Magog invasion in Ezekiel, it tells us that the the number of the dead is so massive. How long did, you remember how long it takes to bury the dead? 
seven years. And that's why I said that had to happen, at least at the very beginning of the tribulation and probably before, because for half of the tribulation, Israel's going to be on the run. Mm -hmm. But they're going to be burying the dead for seven years. If the Revelation event featuring Gog Magog is the same event, I don't know what the purpose of burying the dead would be because what happens right after this? It's, after, it's at the end of the millennium. After the thousand years, what's going to happen? Well, we read Revelation 21 where John says, then, this is after the thousand years, then I saw a new heaven, new earth, for the first heaven, first earth had passed away. So God is going to annihilate and recreate. Uh, guys, we weren't present for the first creation. We're going to be present for the second one. Yeah. God's going to recreate the cosmos and the earth. Uh, there's no need to bury any dead if he's just going to incinerate it and start all over. Okay? Right. So, you, you know, God gave you a, a wonderful thing called a brain, and you can, you can use logic sometimes yeah. when you piece all this together. And you can see, not talking about the same event. So there awesome. you go. All Short right. answer there. Great. <laughs> Short. <laughs> Goodness. All right, let's keep it moving. How does the prophecy about the destruction of Damascus mentioned in Isaiah 17 fit into the prophetic timeline before or during the tribulation? Okay, we didn't get into Isaiah in our study. We talked for eight weeks. There's plenty to talk about with regard to prophecy. Isaiah is a towering book of prophecy. In the Old Testament, there are very important prophecies in there. We didn't really touch on them. Uh, we'll save that for the next series, okay? Uh, but, but someone has read Isaiah 17. Now, I remember this, this became kind of a hot topic about, well, it would have been about 16 years ago. And I, I know it was 16 years ago because I remember where I was. It was in the news. Israel and uh, Syria had engaged in some skirmishes. And I think there were some missiles being fired into Damascus, if I, if I recall. And I was sitting in the hospital room the day that my oldest daughter was born. And she's 16 years old. So that's how I know it was 16 years ago. I was watching it on TV. And they even brought Tim LaHaye on this news program to talk about the prophecy from Isaiah 17. I'll, I'll remember this. So here's what it says. It says that Damascus is going to be destroyed. Now, what you need to know, Damascus is the capital of Syria. It is a populous region. There's about 5 million people in the greater metro Damascus area. It is one of the ancient cities of the world. It is probably the oldest continually inhabited city on planet Earth. I mean, there were decades, centuries even, where, where Jerusalem was not even inhabited by the native people. Damascus, there's always been people in Damascus. Uh, some look at this prophecy of its destruction. They say, was this already fulfilled in history? Some of them, they point to the, the 8th century. You had a, an Assyrian king, uh, Tiglath-Pileser. He comes in there, lays waste to the city, but he doesn't destroy it. It's, not, it's never been totally destroyed. And so this, this is a future prophecy. Has not happened yet. Uh, you might be interested to know that it's also predicted in Jeremiah. Jeremiah talks about the destruction of, uh, of uh, Damascus. So when's this going to be? Well, bottom line, we don't know. Okay, it doesn't say it could be before the rapture, it could be after the rapture, it could be before the tribulation, it could be during the tribulation. Some people contend it's sometime toward the end of the millennium. 
I don't know if, if I buy that. Mm-hmm. I will tell you there's a, there's a Bible uh, a theologian, a, prof- a, a, a prophecy guy named Thomas Ice. I totally respect this guy. He contends this is at the end of the tribulation. And the reason he says that is where this is parked in Isaiah, chapter 17, is in the middle of several chapters that run from like chapter 13 to 23 where a lot of nations are being judged by God. And the first nation that is judged by God in Isaiah is Babylon. And you see Babylon go down in epic fashion during the tribulation in the book of Revelation. And so in succession, according to Isaiah, you got Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Samaria, Ethiopia, Edom, uh, Arabia, Tyre, okay? And in there is Damascus, right in the middle of all that. So he says Babylon is the first one to go. So Babylon clearly goes down during the tribulation period. So this has got to be, according to Dr. Rice, got to be toward the end of the tribulation period. We don't really know for sure, but it's somewhere around there. But the point is, God is righteous, he's a judge, and he will take out all who oppose him. Amen. That's right. That's exactly right. I, I really want to meet that guy's parents, um, the one that named their kid Tigloff. That would be just like, where'd you get that name? Yeah. Where did that T- come from? There, there were a bunch of them. There was like four Tigloth Pilesers. Wow. That's true. They're Assyrians. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. It is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, next question. Now we're moving to the Israel uh, questions, uh, moving to that aspect of them. The first one is, other than Israel, I think this is a good, great question, will pe- people be saved during the tribulation if they didn't accept Christ prior to it? Other than Israel, will other people than be Israel. saved yeah, during the tribulation? The mm-hmm. Absolutely. Israel. Absolutely. Other than Israel. So we know there's going to be a massive revival among the Jews during the tribulation period. Okay? Uh, you're, going to have, you're going to have a couple of resurrected Old Testament saints. Uh, uh, we don't know their identities. Could be Moses and Elijah. Could be Moses and Enoch. We don't know. They're going to prophesy... Uh, for a period of time, they're going to perform miracles. And then after the midpoint, when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with them, the scales will fall from the eyes of the Jewish people. They will look upon Christ, mourning him as one mourns an only son. They will turn their hearts back to the Messiah. And then there are already appointed by God and sealed, uh, at that point, 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Okay? A certain number from every tribe. And imagine, if you will, 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams going forth. In the tribulation, the prime witness for the gospel will not be the church. It's going to be Israel. And they will actually do a better job than we have for 2,000 years. They're going to win more to Christ in three and a half years. Mm. And it's going to be a massive revival. And so, yes, that will include Gentiles other than Israel. So you're going to see a, a, a large turning to Christ in those days. So absolutely, that's true. In fact, Jesus talks about in Matthew 25 a judgment called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Happens at the end of the tribulation. He's going to divide the righteous of the tribulation and the unrighteous of the tribulation. And they're going to be the nations, the Gentiles. He's going to divide them as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. He's going to have the righteous on his right, the unrighteous on his left. And their faith will be indicated by how they treated his brethren. So the, those who have truly been, been saved in the tribulation, have given their hearts to Christ, they will understand that 
Israel is the people of, of Jesus, and they will treat them with, uh, with kindness and uh, meet their needs and such, and that will be indicative of their heart condition. And so those who survive the tribulation mm-hmm. will be allowed to enter the kingdom, and those who uh, are the unrighteous, will, they will depart from Christ into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We also know that there's going to be a number of people that uh, are born again during the tribulation period that will not take the mark of the beast and they will be martyred. Hmm. And so, but they will be raised at the end of the tribulation and they will enter into the king- hmm. kingdom as well. So we, yes, the answer is yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Great, great answer. Great question as well. Yeah. <clears throat> Matthew twenty four fourteen says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Which end is this that this is referring to? The end of the church age or when Israel responds to Jesus as Messiah? Okay, so that verse is talking about the gospel is going to go out to every nation and then the end will come. Have you guys heard that verse before? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's an often misinterpreted verse. So which end is this? Is the end of the church age or the end of the tribulation is that the question when the end of the church age or when israel responds to jesus as messiah okay well it's kind of the same thing because the end of the church age is when israel turns Mm -hmm. to jesus so every age when we talked about ages what characterizes every age well among other things there's a judgment in every age God judges man's disobedience in every age well the the judgment for the church age that we're in right now is going to be the tribulation. But during that tribulation, during that judgment of the earth, Israel will turn back to Messiah. Israel's already been judged. There's been a general blindness on that, on that people. The, the blindness will go away during the tribulation, and the earth will be judged. And they will come to Christ. And so they will, what I, they will do what I just said a few moments ago. They will, they will uh, facilitate the greatest revival that the earth has ever known. And so massive, massive numbers of people come to Christ, and every nation will hear the gospel, and then the end will come. So the end is the end of, of uh, history as we know it. It'll be the end of the tribulation, which gives way to the kingdom when Christ returns and establishes that on the earth, okay? Uh, but this is misinterpreted. I was at a missions conference just a few weeks ago. I was talking to somebody about the Great Commission, how we need to get the gospel out, and they said the following, and I bet you've heard somebody say this. You may have said it yourself. Well, you know, it's important. We gotta get the gospel to every nation because the Lord won't come back until everyone has heard the gospel. Have you heard that before? Mm-hmm. Is that true? No. No, that is not a requirement for the return of the Lord. We believe in the imminent coming of Christ, which means there's nothing that needs to happen. He could come at any moment. Has everyone in the world heard the gospel? No. There are places that are unreached. And so for some people, they're like, they're using that as a motivation. We got to tell everybody, every nation needs to know so that we can hasten the coming of the Lord. I appreciate the sentiment, but you are not going to speed up God. We know that the time of his coming has already been set. It's known to the Father. It's an appointed time. There is a time and a date when he will come back, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. And you're not going to speed him up, and you're not going to slow him down. He's coming when he's coming. Better way to look at it, we don't know when that is. 
It's a finite period of time that we've got left. And so the urgency is, we don't know how long we have. We got to tell everybody that we can yeah, while we still that's right. can. That's right. That's great. You think God has like a, you know how you can sit on your phone like a little reminder, like, hey, don't forget to do, I mean, not that he's going to forget, I know that, but I'm just saying, I just kind of think about that, like, hey, in 15 minutes, we're going to be going down there. So the angels are like, holy, holy, and now all of a sudden they hear that, they're like, he's like, 15 minutes, 15 minutes, I don't know, it's just something. Did you want me to answer that (laughs) No, you don't have to. (laughs) It's just... The things Billy thinks about. It's just, it's just shallow thoughts from Billy G. <laughs> that should be maybe a weekly podcast. Yeah, exactly. Shallow thoughts. It's not deep thoughts. It's just shallow thoughts. <laughs> not deep thoughts, yeah. <laughs> all right, the mark of the beast. Let's go into this, all right? Uh, will believers have to face the mark of the beast before the rapture? What do you guys think? No. The answer is no. One reason, obviously, if you know... Uh, chronology in the tribulation. When is the mark of the beast? When is it implemented? It's after the midpoint, right? Mm-hmm. So the beginning of the tribulation is the Antichrist makes a, a treaty, a covenant with Israel, allowing them to rebuild their temple, make sacrifices. He's going to break that covenant at the three and a half year mark. And then they're going to reject him. They're going to flee. He's going to pursue them. He is also going to commit what breaks the covenant is what, what we call the abomination of desolation. He's going to present himself as the object to be worshipped in the temple. And so what we have then is the beginning of a new world religion. Mm. And shortly thereafter, Antichrist is going to suffer a, 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 an apparently fatal wound from which he will miraculously recover, and it will kind of appear to be a resurrection of sorts. And then there will be another figure that rises called the false prophet... And he will facilitate uh, this world religion. It'll be a global religion centered around worship of the Antichrist. And part of that religion uh, will involve the mark of the beast. You must take the mark of the beast. And that will involve somehow the numbers 666, okay? And so you got to take that. If you don't take it, uh, this this world religion will double as a, a global economic system, and so if you don't take the mark, you're not going to be allowed to participate in, in the economic system. You can't buy, you can't sell. Furthermore, you will be beheaded. And so uh, some people fear that. Uh, some people, if they don't know that chronology, if they don't hold to a pre-tribulational rapture as I do, uh, they might be a little worried about that. Yeah, could, it, could, sure. could I be? Sometimes they see things in the news and they jump to conclusions. So during the pandemic... Uh, I don't know if you watched the news. There was a lot of stuff lying around that mm-hmm. kind of gave people, you know, some alarm bells. Yep. And one of them was, you know, government mandates on vaccination, perhaps threats of that. Mm-hmm. Some businesses, some corporations, employers were requiring that sort of a thing. I saw something in the news that Bill Gates was involved in maybe the development of some technology. I think this might have been a rumor, but I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised if it were true. The development of technology in the form of a super micro microchip that would contain all your medical information. Mm -hmm. It would be perhaps implanted on your person and then you could be scanned, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe here, maybe here. Mm -hmm. And they would know if you've been vaccinated and it'd be kind of a, you know, some sort of a, uh, a way to confirm if you were able, if you were kosher to do business and Mm -hmm. things like that. So people see stuff like that and they go, whoa, 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 you know, and they worry about it. Yeah. And then I had people coming to me as a pastor, can you help me with a religious exemption so I don't take the mark of the beast, you know? 
And I kept telling him, That was your verbiage in the letter that you sent to all these places. Yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. I said, look, that's not the mark of the beast. I'm, I'm totally sympathetic if you don't want to get, you know, get the jab. And, you know, totally. But I'm, I, it's not the mark of the beast, okay? Uh, because the mark of the beast is not something that you will accidentally take. It is not something that will have to do with, with medicine. It is going to be an obvious allegiance and alignment with the Antichrist. So you answered my question then. Absolutely. Because it's not going to be the 666 COVID vaccine shot that you get that's going to cause the... No. And, and, and what, and is, COVID what is, is that number? All? Yeah, people looking for... I saw code things. People are trying to tie in numbers. I'm like, you know, we're, we're not to watch for the coming of Antichrist. We're to watch for the coming of Jesus Christ. Yep. Amen? That's right. So we don't need to fear... I don't think there's any need to fear. We, he, he's the one who comes to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. Anyway, That's awesome. hope that answers that yeah, question. Yeah, that was great. That was great. All right. <clears throat> in one session, we looked at the prophetic significance of the number 666. Yeah. We addressed the interpretation of Revelation 13, 18. However, a 2005 discovery of what is now the oldest known manuscripts containing Revelation 13, 18 references the numerals 616 instead of 666. The manuscript is referred to as Papyrus 115. How is this difference reconciled? That's their question. Somebody has done their homework. Yeah, for sure. That is a deep <laughs> question. It's, an, it's a fascinating question. All right, Papyrus 115. I don't know if, you, if anybody's heard of this. Um, papyrus, well, papyrus is the material that ancient scrolls were made of, and it comes from plants, very durable material. That's why scrolls survive as long as they do. Very, very durable. Uh, there, there was a, 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 an archaeological find called Papyrus 115. It was in Egypt, a place called uh, Oxyrhynchus, Oxy, I think is what it was called. Nah, I think that's right. And <laughs> Do you? Yeah. Is that right, Bill? That's what I was thinking. So... I think it oxa rings us a bell. It oxa rings a bell? <laughs> I think you're an oxymoron as well. Yeah, I, I think you're <laughs> I concur. Touche. <laughs> shallow thoughts. Shallow thoughts. Shallow thoughts. Uh, all right. So they found this thing in Egypt. It's, it is older. So the oldest complete manuscript of Revelation that we've got, the most complete re- uh, manuscript, is called the Codex Sinaiticus, and it contains the majority of Revelation, all right? So they find this, this other thing, Papyrus 115, it's older. It's several years older than the Codex Sinaiticus, and it's not a complete manuscript. It's fragments, so you need to know that. These are fragments. Mm-hmm. They're like, they're scraps, basically, of papyrus. Now, on one of these scraps is Revelation was it 1318? 13, yeah. mm-hmm. And it contains that verse that says the number of the beast is 666, except in this fragment it says 616, not 666. And it's older. Now, before you jump to the conclusion and say, oh my gosh, everything that we've ever thought is wrong, and, and all this stuff, the mark of the beast is not 666. <laughs> you know, before you go, you know, flipping out on that, you need to understand Papyrus 115 is not the oldest. Uh, fragment that we've got. There's an older one. It's called Papyrus 47. And it also features this text, and it, it says 666. Mm. 
So it's older. Mm -hmm. So what are we dealing with? Well, the other thing is, uh, so you and I might write numbers in, in shorthand. So if we're gonna write these numbers, we might write them like this, right? So in Greek, there is also a shorthand for numerals. And that is the shorthand that appears on Papyrus 47 and on Papyrus 115, which says six, in the case of 115, it, it appears like, you know, what, what we might write in English, or wait, no, 616, isn't it? It might appear like we would write that in English. In the Codex Sinaiticus, which is the dominant manuscript that we use, it's the equivalent of what we would do if we spelled it out, okay? 666. They write it out, but in Greek. You understand? And so which would maybe be the more clear way to communicate what the actual number is? Well, it would be to write it out. And so that's not for nothing that the Codex Sinaiticus. I would also say that the early church father, I think it's Ignatius, it might be Irenaeus. I don't remember. Uh, it doesn't really matter. You don't know. So anyway, he, he, he actually Ignatius. addressed this issue. Apparently, he was aware. So this is the second century. Hmm. The second century. He was aware of a manuscript of Revelation. So here's a guy within, within 100 and some odd years of Revelation being written. Mm -hmm. He's aware of a, of a fragment or a manuscript out there that says 616. And he said, and I put the quote down, I don't know how it is that some have erred following the ordinary mode of speech and have vitiated the middle number in the name. I am inclined to think this occurred through the fault of the copyists, as is wont to happen, since numbers are expressed by letters. The Greek letter, which expresses the number 60, was easily expanded into the letter Yoda of the Greeks. So that kind of explains why you got what appears to look like 616. Gringa. Not Yoda, oh, okay. Yoda. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yoda. <laughs> they should have just used Roman numerals, then everything would have been solved. Yeah. About right. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, those, those are so easy to yeah. <laughs> pick up on. That's true. <laughs> All right, so Revelation 20 says, the souls of those beheaded during the tribulation who, have n who had not taken the mark of the beast would be raised to reign with Christ for a thousand years, and the rest of the dead are raised after that. Are these martyrs the only ones with Christ during the millennial reign? Uh, no. No. So they're asking that because it says, uh, well, in, in the text. So they're, they're, they're reading from Revelation 20. 20. Mm -hmm. uh, it says, uh, those who had not worshipped the beast for its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. The rest of the dead does not refer to the dead of all time. It refers to the rest of the unrighteous dead. The unrighteous dead. There are, there are other passages that, that speak of the righteous dead being resurrected. Plus, you've also got some other persons that are present for the kingdom period. So the thousand years. So let me, let me just run down who's there. You want to know who's going to be there mm -hmm. in the millennial kingdom? All right, you got Jesus. You know he's going to be there. So this is the kingdom on earth. You're going to have the resurrected saints that had been raptured. That's us, baby. All right? Mm -hmm. We're going to be there. In fact, we're coming back with him. When he raptures us, he's coming to get us. Mm -hmm. When he comes at the end of the tribulation, he's coming come back, but we're coming him. with him. Yeah. So we will be there. Number two, you, you're going to have the Old Testament believers. 
So that would be your Moses, your Abraham, your David. They're going to be raised. They're going to be there. You're going to have Israel at the time of the tribulation that turns to Christ. Okay? So they, and many of them will have survived the tribulation, and they will just enter the kingdom alive. Okay? They won't be resurrected. They'll, they'll just walk in. Then you're going to have the Gentile saints that survived the tribulation that have turned to Christ. Okay, that's, that's that judgment, sheep and the goats, mm-hmm. you know, enter into the kingdom, mm-hmm. my servants, blessed are you. And so they come in, they're going to be there. Then you'll have these guys, and we call these the tribulation martyrs. So these are those, and there are going to be a lot of Gentiles among these that, that turn to Christ, they don't take the mark of the beast, and as a result, they get martyred, they get killed. John sees their souls in heaven and they will, they will be raised and they will enter the kingdom. Anybody else? Would there be anybody else that I'm missing that is going to be present for the millennium, at least part of it? Can you think of anybody else? All right, if you've got people that enter the kingdom age and they're alive, okay, they are in the same physical state that they were before the kingdom began, what are they capable of? Procreation. Okay? So that leaves the possibility open that there will be children born during the thousand years. Okay? And it's a thousand years. So they're going to grow up. They're going to have children. And those children are going to have children. So you're going to have multiple generations over a period of thousand years. And we know that this has got to be true because at the end of the thousand years, what are you going to have? You're going to have a rebellion against God. Are the saints going to rebel against God? Is Israel going to rebel against God? No. Who's going to rebel against God? Uh, People born during the millennium that have never turned to Christ. Now, they've never evidenced sinfulness because who's bound during the kingdom? Satan. Who's released at the end of the kingdom age? Satan. And so he goes forth to deceive the nations. Many of them are not legitimately born again. They just are not sinful yet. Then he deceives them, tempts them, and there's a rebellion. So we know that there will be people born during the kingdom age. So, so you think those um, that take the mark of the beast or when the mark of the beast comes, do you think it's obvious, like it's obvious you're taking the mark of the beast? Or do you think no. it's, it's some kind it's of... It's obvious. Like, it's obvious, okay. It's, it's presented, like you know. You yeah. know what it is. This is a religion. You are, you are saying... Antichrist is, is, my, is my God. And then, but they'll be duped by them thinking it's a world religion that's pulling them together and unifying everyone and mm-hmm. making all of that. And then all of a sudden, that three and a half years, that's when he flips. The Bible is clear that those who take the mark are, are damned eternally. Mm-hmm. You don't take it and not mean it. Mm. Okay? You don't, you, you don't be like, well, I'm just going to say I'm taking it. But in my heart, I belong to Jesus. There won't be any of that. No true right. Christian is going to do that. No Christian's going to do that. You're going to stand for Christ. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to stand in the gap for Christ. You're going you're gonna to testify. Mm. That's going to be the mark of the authentic heart. Mm. And you, you face the consequences because you know your soul belongs to Christ. And that, that's the truth of those days. Cool. Yeah. Sweet. All right, let's move on to the afterlife before right. we uh, round, uh, round it all out okay. with the rapture. So yeah. in the afterlife, 
What scriptures give me confidence that in heaven I will know, this is a great question, will know and reconnect with loved ones who have already died, and how will we know each other? Even all dogs that go to heaven. All dogs that go to heaven? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. How many of you are looking forward to seeing somebody again in heaven? Yeah. Somebody who's departed, maybe, already? Yeah. I think we all can think of someone that we can't wait to see again. Um, well, we, we had it. What scripture can comfort us toward that? Well, we, we read one last week when I talked about the rapture. Because what was the concern Paul was addressing with the Thessalonian church? They had loved ones, Christians, who had died. They knew the Lord was coming back. They'd heard maybe he was, he was coming back soon. And they're like, what about so-and-so? They, they're going to miss it. Paul's writing to comfort them. No, they're not going to miss anything. They're with him now. He's coming back. And their, their souls will be with him. Their bodies are in the tombs now. <clears throat> but he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then what? Then we who are left, who are alive, will be caught up. And then there's two very important words. With them. Mm-hmm. Caught up with them. Mm-hmm. And then it says, and together we will always be with the Lord. We'll always we be with the Lord. Never depart. All right? That's comforting. Now, that's the rapture. That's the context of the rapture. Mm-hmm. What about right now? If, if so-and-so dies and then, you know, I live out the rest of my days and I, I pass away one day, am I going to see them, even though that's not the rapture? Uh, <clears throat> will I see them? Yes. If you're, if you're in Christ, you're going to see them again because you're going to the same place that they are, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's clear in Scripture as well. Paul says... Uh, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, to die is only gain if you're going to be with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Mm-hmm. You're going to be with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, and I think it's a Philippians, uh, I'm, I'm torn between the two for me to depart and be with Christ is much better by far. Mm-hmm. So you know that when the believer passes from this life, they're in the presence of Christ, every believer. Will we know each other? That's really what people want to know. Mm-hmm. Am I going to know each other? I think of that Clapton song, right? You remember that Clapton song? You Would you know my name? name? Right? Yep. If, if I saw you in heaven. All right? What, is that true? Well, only if you know Jesus. Only if you know mm. the Lord. We know that the righteous that depart this life are recognizable, even if we get a resurrection body. Apparently so. Apparently so. So I think back to... Uh, uh, the the, the um, what do you call it? the the uh, transfiguration mm. of Jesus? He's mm-hmm. on the mount with the mm-hmm. some of the disciples. Yep. He's glorified. Yep. They want to stay. Peter there and company that. look yep. up. They see Jesus talking with Moses mm-hmm. and Elijah, mm. and they recognize them. Now that's kind of interesting because have they ever met Moses or Elijah? Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. So not only are we able to identify one another whom we knew in this life, we're apparently able to identify people that we've never met. Name tags. Maybe name tags <laughs> that light up. I'm Moses. Yeah, right. Maybe his hair's parted in the middle or something. Uh, Jesus, <laughs> Moses parts his hair. Exactly. Uh, it's red. <laughs> the red sea, you know, the reed sea. Um, <laughs> what was I praying for? Interesting. Uh, you know, okay. I think of the story Christ tells the rich man of Lazarus, right? 
Mm-hmm. And by the way, I don't think that was just a story. I think those are real people. Mm-hmm. Rich man dies, goes to hell. Lazarus dies, leper, beggar. He goes to where? Paradise. He goes to paradise. Very interesting, yes. Uh, he goes to be, he's at Abraham's side. Now, between torment, where the rich man is, flames, and paradise, where the righteous are, there's a, there's a gulf there. They could see across. The rich man recognizes Lazarus. Mm. He recognizes Abraham. Mm-hmm. He calls out, makes a request, you know? So they recognize one another. Mm-hmm. When Christ raises from the, <clears throat> rises from the dead, he is a resurrection body. It's transformed. It's glorious. People know him immediately. Yeah. Mary Magdalene, Peter, John, they all know him. So we will be known. We're going to have a body like his. So I will know you. You will know me. Mm. All right? So no fear. I think that's encouraging. Does that yeah. encourage you guys? Yeah, for sure. Amen. That's awesome. All right. <clears throat> next one on the afterlife. Jesus told the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. What's the difference between, we kind of, you kind of okay, set this one up yeah. a little bit. What's the difference between heaven, paradise, and purgatory, and who goes where and for how long? And Okay. All right. Good question. Yeah. All right. So we talked about paradise. So Jesus tells the story of the rich man of Lazarus, and, and, and Lazarus, it doesn't say he goes to heaven. It doesn't say he goes to heaven. It says he goes to Abraham's side. Now, in other passages... Uh, scholars have kind of done a, a, a parallel that this is the same as paradise. Paradise. So what this is, paradise is the, uh, the, the abode of the Old Testament righteous, of that era, okay? So we don't have a, here. oh, good, we got one right here. Okay, great. So the way this looks, and I'm, I'm gonna try to, do this as simply as I can. I might turn this on its side, though. Let's see here. Can I do that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. All right. So there was, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, you never read about a righteous person dying and going to heaven. You never see that. When the righteous die, when anyone dies, they go to a place called Sheol. All right? That's the Hebrew. Sheol or however you want to pronounce it. All right, Frank, you can correct me later, buddy. All right. In the Greek, it's called Hades. Okay? Now, apparently, the way this broke down, and this is just kind of a rudimentary thing to help you understand it, there are two compartments here. You got, uh, you got what Christ refers to as Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. Bosom. I kind of prefer side. Mm-hmm. And then over here, you've got what we might call hell or torment, okay? And what, G- what Jesus refers to as Gehenna in the New Testament. And so Lazarus is over here with Abraham, okay? And then you got the rich man over here, and he's in torment, and he's in, engulfed in flame. They see each other, but there's a chasm, Okay? There's a gap. There's a gulf right here. He calls across, Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in cool water and, and, and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Abraham responds. They can see one another. They can talk to one another from one side to the other. He says, we cannot come to you, nor can anyone on your side come to us. 
Isn't that something? And the interesting thing is, the rich man doesn't ask to get out. Fascinating. As I read that, he doesn't ask to get out. He doesn't say, can you get me out of here? Come get me. He says, send him here to cool my tongue. He won't leave, even if given the opportunity. Weird. Okay? The, the hardness of the unrepentant heart. And he says, well, then send him to my brothers to warn them lest they end up here mm-hmm. in torment. Mm-hmm. Abraham says, they have Moses, they have the prophets. They will not believe even if someone has risen from the dead. Mm. That's the hardness of man's heart right there. Yeah. But you got this chasm. Now, when Jesus rises from the dead, so we read Ephesians, and Ephesians tells us that uh, when he ascended, he led captives in his train. He led captives in his train, okay? Where did he lead them? He, he led them to a place that we would call the third heaven, okay? What is that? That is the dwelling place of God the Father. You never see a, a righteous Jew in the Old Testament go to be with the Father. They always go to paradise. They always go to Abraham's side, okay? Sheol, okay? When Christ uh, is, is, is crucified, he descends to Sheol. He goes two places. I'm not getting into all that. I'm going to teach mm-hmm. on Genesis uh, 6 in the fall. I'm going to get into this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But one of the places he goes is to the righteous part of Sheol, and he does a jailbreak on these guys, and he transports them here. Because later in the New Testament, you do see paradise referred to as being in heaven where the Father is where the Father is. And so we know immediately. So Jesus says, he's already told the disciples before he goes to the cross, he says, I am going to my Father. Well, the Father's not in Sheol, Mm. so eventually he's going to the Father, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But he also tells the church that I'm gonna come and get you and I'm gonna bring you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Well, where is he? He's with the Father. Mm. So where are they? They're in the third heaven. This paradise is now part of heaven. It's not in Sheol anymore. When we read in the Old Testament, David in Psalm 49, 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will ransom my... Ransom. That sounds like a, a redemption situation. Yeah. That sounds like a price has been paid mm-hmm. at that point. That's yeah. the cross. Mm-hmm. And so upon the resurrection and, and by the ascension of Christ... He gets these guys out. By the way, you see many of these saints resurrect after Christ's resurrection. The tombs split and break open, and the bodies of many saints come out and appear to those around Jerusalem for a period of time until the ascension. Hmm. And then he, he leads captives in his train. So that, Now, that is kind of the breakdown of the Old Testament abode of the dead, righteous and unrighteous. Somebody threw in purgatory. Uh, that is a Catholic doctrine. It is not found in Scripture. So if you grew up Catholic or you grew up believing in purgatory, uh, the best I can guess is they read about paradise, some mm-hmm. can, mm-hmm. equate it with some sort of a holding place, and, and then built on that doctrine, and it became this notion of purgatory. But it, it's, it's, it's kind of saddled with some uh, ideology about you gotta, you got to earn your way out of purgatory and such. There's nothing like that in Scripture. There's no such place as purgatory. Uh, the believer dies, they're immediately in the presence of the Lord, mm. immediately. Cool. All right. So I'm going to ask one more question about the afterlife so yeah. we can get to the rapture. Mm. Um, and I think this is a, a good one 
that's almost like a hot potato okay. kind of question right. in the same way that the, uh, <clears throat> what we're talking about in prophecy. But when believers are reunited with deceased loved ones in heaven, how will it work with somebody whose spouse previously died and they remarried? Whoa, somebody's... <laughs> yeah. Is that... <laughs> Is that person... Sorry, you know, uh, is that person reunited with their first spouse, <laughs> most recent spouse? How would that work? That's a good question. It's <laughs> a great question. <laughs> and, you know, Jesus was asked a very similar question yeah. by the Sadducees in Matthew, uh, in Matthew, uh, I don't know what, it, but 22, Matthew 22. So they come to him, they say, teacher, master, if a... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow. So there was this concept called leveret marriage where if a guy didn't have children and he died, his brother could marry his widow so that she could have children, be blessed with children, and it would, mm-hmm. it would give her, uh, you know, it would provide for her, things mm-hmm. like that. This was in, in Jewish culture. And so they present this scenario. Guy dies, no kids. His brother marries the widow. They have children. That guy dies. Well, there's seven brothers total. They give him like the most complicated scenario. She's got seven husbands. Seven, one bride for seven brothers, I guess. It's a musical. It's a yes. Jewish musical. That's right. It's a sequel to Fiddler on the Roof. That's anyway. Right. And they're, what are they doing when they ask him this? They're trying to trip him up. Yeah. So what they say, they, they, and the interesting thing is they say, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. In the resurrection. Now, the, the interesting thing, you can hear the smarm on that question because if you know anything about the Sadducees, this was a sect of Judaism. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They were anti-resurrection. Mm-hmm. And Jesus knows this. So he knows their motivation. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to make him look like a fool. And you can't do that with Christ. Impossible. So here's what he says. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Uh, And so what he's saying here is two things. First of all, there is a resurrection, you fools. There is a resurrection. Mm -hmm. And number two, when we are raised, uh, when we are in the afterlife, we will not have these kinds of relationships with one another. There will not be marriage among the resurrected. Mm -hmm. Okay? There won't be. Now, I, I gave you the example of those who enter the kingdom in the same physical state they have not died yet, they have not been raised, they have not been transformed, and so they are, they are still able to have these kinds of relationships. Those of us who have been ultimately redeemed, raised, transformed, resurrected, whatever, uh, we will not. We will not. Now, some of you just looked over at your spouse and you went, aw. <laughs> and some of you glanced at your spouse and you thought, huh. <laughs> All right? Because uh, you, you previously were like, can I do eternity with this person? I don't know. Um, if you're wondering how that's going to be, because you're right, there are situations where people have multiple marriages. Mm-hmm. There's some people who have been widowed and they've remarried. Maybe they've been widowed multiple times. Do you, here's, here's what it comes down to. Do you think that God, who is a just God, 
is going to subject you to an eternity of awkward. <laughs> no. Bottom line, it's not going to be weird. It's not going to be weird. Think about the purpose of marriage. It's a gift. Marriage is a gift. Mm-hmm. What's the purpose? God looked at Adam said, it's not good for man to be alone. Right? Mr. Lion had Mrs. Lion, Mr. Giraffe had Mrs. Giraffe. There was no Mrs. Adam. God looks at him. He says he's got a need. He's lonely and he needs a helper. You know? Men need help. And so Amen. in eternity, in glory, are we going to be lonely? No. Are we going to need help? No, we'll be perfect. Everybody. And so the purpose of marriage in this life would not be the purpose of marriage in that life. And uh, another, another kind of a byproduct of marriage is procreation. You've got to fill the earth, multiply. That's not going to be a concern in the kingdom. It's not going to be a concern in heaven. It will be populated by all who have come by faith. It won't be populated in the normal means, okay? So you just got to trust the sovereignty of God. It's not going to be weird. Yeah. So. Good. so that person that's looking to remarry now that your spouse is here, free reign. Go ahead. You don't have to worry about it in heaven down the road one day. Go ahead. Remarry. Right? <laughs> or, or marry again if that spouse has died. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Sounds like you're setting up a whole nother Q&A. <laughs> Shallow thoughts. Shallow thoughts. Keep going. Here we go. The rapture. Let's move on into the rapture right. as we bring this home. Yeah. Um, what reasons might be given for the disappearance of the church that the world will believe oh. at the rapture. Pretty cool. What reasons might be given? So yeah. what, what would the mass disappearance of perhaps millions, uh, upward of a billion might be attributed to is the mm. question, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Well, I'll tell you, I, this is not a biblical answer, right? This mm-hmm. is all conjecture. Right. Somebody give me one, throw one out. What would be a reason? Aliens, Aliens right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the first thing that popped into my head. UFO, alien abductions on a mass scale. Have you guys noticed there's a lot of UFO reporting over the last year or two? You well, see a lot of that. Well, and the thing is, we know that our, our news organizations always report accurate information. Oh, so yeah. it, nothing like that would like, yeah. I mean, just, <laughs> just look right. at our news now. You wonder what might be, reasons might be given. Go talk to them. They'll give you a million different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, they're... I, I think that Satan can use what's in the popular, uh, uh, you know, consciousness and, and, and dialogue to kind of set up, you know, uh, explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's one possibility. I've I've heard some, um, I would say, reliable theologians who have pontificated about UFOs to say that they don't necessarily believe that they are. Uh, extraterrestrial well they're they're not aliens like from another planet per, perhaps they would say they could be extraterrestrial and that and that they could be supernatural manifestations of the demonic realm mm-hmm. and so there there are theory and they're just mm-hmm. theories mm-hmm. there's no biblical thing you could point to to say that but they say you know satan is a is a master of illusion mm-hmm. he's a master deceiver mm-hmm. he loves to distract people he loves to get us focused on things that are not important and 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 he could definitely see uh, these person, these people could definitely see that the enemy would use something like that to kind of explain away the mass dis- disappearance of people. The other thing, and I floated this last week, is that it may be that the witness of the church and, and, and that the presence of the church would dwindle, would decline to such a degree 
that by the time the rapture happened, there would be so few uh, actual authentic members of, of the church of Jesus Christ left on the earth mm. that when they are raptured, no one would notice. Mm. Which is kind of a sad thought. Yeah, it is sad. Think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other, I mean, dude, I don't, I don't know. It's yeah. all conjecture, you know, environmental stuff. Uh, Christians tend to be conservative. The liberals might be like, well, those conservatives finally vaporized themselves. Yeah. We're free. <laughs> now utopia can begin, you know, all this yeah. stuff. You don't know. Let them have it. Yeah. Let them have it. So if the church is raptured before the tribulation, why are the elect mentioned in Matthew 24, uh, verse 22? Okay, I've heard this before. This is actually a pretty common uh, pushback against a pre-trib rapture view. So here's what Matthew 24 says. It says, For the, there will then be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So we're obviously talking about the great tribulation says so right in the verse. The sticking point for some about a, a pre-trib rapture is in verse 22. It says, and if those days, speaking of the tribulation, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. In other words, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. And so the implication is, only because they're going to be elect people going through the tribulation would it be a finite period that would only last seven years. Okay? It's for their sake. People point to that word elect and they go, aha! See? Elect! The church will go through the tribulation. So there goes your silly, silly pre-trib uh, view. Mm-hmm. Only problem, the word for the church is ecclesia. Mm-hmm. Okay? That is not the word that is used here. Church, the church is a very important word. The elect is a different word. Mm. It's eklektoi in this, this form of that word. Uh, the church is ecclesia. The elect, eklektoi. Uh, the church are elect, but does the church total all of the elect? Mm. Well, no. No, the Old Testament had elect. Okay, Moses was elect, Abraham was elect, right? Mm-hmm. David was elect. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It means that God chosen. God chosen. Mm-hmm. It means to choose, to cho- the chosen mm-hmm. ones, right? And so, are there going to be elect in the tribulation? Yes. Are they the church? No. Were there elect in the Old Testament? Yes. Were they the church? No. So you have elect in every age. So we are in the church age. The elect of the church age comprise the church. The elect of the Old Testament are the Old Testament uh, believers. The elect of the tribulation period, we call those the tribulation saints. Hmm. Different facet of the elect of God. So that's the way that I would explain that. Which is why ecclesia, the church, the called out the ones, called out ones. Yeah, are so important yeah. to be a part of the church to, yeah. you know, in this day and age yeah, that's right. uh, that we live in. Uh, because the next thing that will happen is the rapture. Nothing else needs to happen. Nothing uh, needs to happen. You're right, yeah. So, all right, so <clears throat> next question. How can the rapture be before the tribulation when in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, it says the dead will be raised at the last trumpet? The dead will be raised at the last trumpet. Uh, so in Revelation, you've got trumpet judgments. How many of them are there? There are seven. Uh, and so, yes, 1 Corinthians 15 says the dead will be raised at the last 
trumpet. Well, the way to explain this is when Paul wrote the Corinthian letters, had Revelation been written yet? No. Revelation is the final book to be written in the Bible. So the audience that Paul had with this letter would know nothing of trumpet judgments. So it's, we should not assume that he is referring to the seventh trumpet mm-hmm. uh, of the trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation. He says the last trumpet. What kind of trumpet are we talking about? Well, in Scripture, you, you see two kinds of trumpets. You see summoning trumpets, a summoning trumpet, and you see trumpets of judgment. Mm. And so in Revelation, you've got seven trumpet judgments. They're very specific trumpets for specific judgments. The trump referred to in 1 Corinthians, I believe, is the same trump that is referred to in 1 Thessalonians 4. And the Lord will descend with a shout, with the trump of the archangel. It's a, it's a come up hither. It's a mm-hmm. call. It's a, it's a revely, revely. Mm-hmm. Get up. That great getting up morning. And so he is going to call us upward. Uh, that is the trumpet at which the dead are raised in 1 Corinthians 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you read about the trumpet judgment in Revelation, you don't read about any dead being raised. It's a judgment. Hmm. Nobody's being raised. Mm-hmm. People are being killed is what's happening. It's the exact opposite hmm. at that trumpet. So yeah. very different context. It's obvious it's not the same trumpet. Yeah, makes sense. Understand. Understood. All right. Uh, last one, I think, and puts us about right on time for where okay. we're at. So. Good. Um, that, that we can connect with here unless you have others that you want or anything else you want to conclude with or wrap things up. So I'll ask this and then toss it over to you yeah. to say your final thoughts. But what about those who say the rapture theory has only been around since 1830 and came from questionable sources when that came about? The rapture you, theory. You hear this a lot. So people, people who criticize the, the pre-trib rapture or just really rapture in general uh they say well that's that's a new doctrine it's not been around very long 160 180 190 years something something like that and they they say it's brand new it was never discussed never brought up and when it was first brought up and the story always goes along these lines a guy wrote a book about this and it kind of spread like wildfire he says there was a young girl in scotland back in the 1800s her name was Margaret McDonald, and she was part of a sort of a, a charismatic cult called the Irvingites in Scotland. And she had a vision, and she went into a trance, and she had these, these uh, utterances in some kind of foreign tongue. And she spewed forth this thing, and it was kind of, it was transcribed, and her vision was written out, and that was the first introduction of the concept of a rapture, particularly a pre-tribulational rapture of the church and then a guy comes along and they always say a fellow by the name of john nelson darby scottish theologian he is known to be the father of dispensationalism he's a proponent of the pre-trib rapture darby got a hold of her vision built a whole theological system around it and that's how we got dispensational thought that's how we got a pre-trib rapture but it's less than two centuries old yada 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 that's that's the criticism okay only one problem it's not true not true. So it is true that there was a girl named Margaret McDonald. It is true that she was part of this kind of an offshoot, kind of a questionable, uh, sketchy group. She did supposedly have a trance where she had this vision and uttered this stuff. Um, 
John Nelson Darby did not adopt that for anything. In fact, he was highly, he's on record as being highly critical of it. Mm. He, he, he attributed what came out of her as demonic. Mm. Furthermore, he was teaching a pre-trib rapture well before her supposed vision. Mm -hmm. It's documented. Mm -hmm. And to add to that, he was not the first one. And so even if they say, well, John Nelson Darby's only been around 200 years or such. Okay, you can go back before Darby. You go back to the 1700s. You had a Baptist uh, theologian by the name of Morgan Edwards. Have you heard of Brown University? Mm -hmm. Morgan Edwards founded Brown University. Very prominent theologian. They should have used, what can Brown do for you? They should have been their tagline. What can Brown do for you? Anyway, go ahead. Dude, you're like, squirrel. (laughs) No, sorry. It came out of nowhere. (laughs) Don't mean to get you off track. It just comes to me. Dude, if if the Lord would come back right now, that would be great. So Morgan Edwards came up with it. He he didn't come up with it, but he taught it. It was in the 1700s. You go back further than that. You can go back to the 1300s. You got a... You got an Italian uh, theologian, Brother Dolcino, northern Italy, and he taught a pre-trib rapture. That's the, the 1300s, mm. so you're in the Middle Ages. Yeah. You can go back to the third century mm. and find the pre-tribulational rapture taught. There's a, a writer and author named Pseudo Ephraim that wrote on this. Third century document. You can go back to the second century. You've got, you've got uh, parts of an ancient document called the Didache, that dates to the, the church father's era that, that advocates for a pre-trib rapture. Mm-hmm. The early church fathers in the second century, all, all of them adhered to what is called an imminent coming of Christ. Imminent. That's mm-hmm. what we hold to at TLC, yep. meaning he can come back at any moment. That's right. Is there any view on the timing of the rapture that aligns with imminence <laughs> other than a pre-trib rapture? No. no. If you believe in a post-trib rapture, is that imminent? Mm-mm. No, because you've got to go through seven years of hell mm-hmm. on earth to get mm-hmm. to Jesus coming back. If you believe in a mid-trib rapture, no, that's not at any moment. That's three and a half minimum. Mm-hmm. Pre-wrath, well, that's four years, give or take, some odd months. Okay, the only view that advocates for an imminent coming of Christ is the pre-tribulational rapture mm-hmm. view. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so uh, I think that this is the, the argument that it's a new view. Look, some people say, well, the reformers never talked about it. You know, you never, you never saw Martin Luther or, or John Calvin or Thomas Aquinas or Augustine or any of these major figures of, of, of church history. They never talked about a pre-tribulational rapture. Okay, first of all, the Reformation, if you're going to say that a, a doctrine is invalidated because there might have been centuries where people did not advocate for it. Uh, leading up to the Reformation, you know what nobody talked about for centuries? Justification by faith alone. Mm. Justification by grace alone. Mm. Uh, salvation by Christ alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the authority of Scripture alone. So scripture. That we, we, we work for the glory of God alone. Mm-hmm. No, the church was the authority mm. for centuries since Constantine in the old Roman Empire, all right? And so the argument that if centuries go by and nobody talks about it, it must not be worth paying attention to. Nobody paid attention to the five solos of the Reformation until Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses mm-hmm. to the door of the cathedral at Wittenberg, Germany. Mm. And the reformers are heroes of mine. Mm. We owe them all a debt. We would yeah. all, without them, we would all be Catholic or lost, and sometimes that's the same thing, mm. all right? <laughs> 
so they're heroes, but they didn't get, they don't, I don't agree with them on everything. Mm -hmm. Okay? Right. And part of the reason that they may not have been on board with this is because a lot of them didn't have access to the Word of God. Right. For centuries. It was Mm -hmm. all via certain priests. Everything came through the church until Martin Luther said, no, let's put the Bible in the hands of the people. Right. The great unwashed can understand Mm -hmm. the Word of God. And that's going to take time to get to all the doctrine that's in the Word of God. But Mm -hmm. he caught the essentials, Mm -hmm. and he promoted those, and we owe him a great debt of gratitude. For sure. But now centuries have gone by. We can read the Bible from cover to cover. We can see how it unfolds. We can see what makes sense. We can discern what is there to be spiritually discerned, and Mm -hmm. I'm grateful because it's an adventure. Yeah. Amen? Which makes what we hold so precious, and we ought to be grateful for it and love on it and read it and engage it and talk about it and and live it, you know. That's what the world needs to see. They need to see see the Bible lived out in front of them with the waitress or the waiter or, you know, the person next door to them uh, because that's going to usher them in to paradise, heaven. You bet. So, you bet. cool. Any, any final thoughts as we wrap up and finish up here? Well, you guys are troopers for journeying yeah. with me on this prophecy thing. Yep. Uh, I'm starting a new series. We're going to call it The Basics. The Basics. <laughs> we got people down here going, yeah. mercy! <laughs> it's going to be the basics of the Christian life. How do I spend time with Christ? How do I understand the Bible? How do I pray effectively? Mm. How do I live in community? Yeah. How do I serve others? Great. How do I share my faith? Let's go back to the basics, huh? Yeah. And let's emphasize this stuff, and we're going to have a productive summer together as we learn to be better Christians yep. together. Lots of exciting things on yep. the horizon for what's going on here oh, and what we're teaching. And, absolutely. And just so many things. God's blessed where we are. I'm so thankful to be here at the Lamb's Chapel. Me too, grateful buddy. for our team, grateful for our church people that we get to love on and grateful that they love on us back to you. So thank you guys for We're all blessed. that you do for us. Thank you you. want to close us out in prayer? I would love we'll... to. Father God, thank you for this uh, amazing church and uh, for your global church, God, and the promises that you have made that we can claim, we can be confident in. We thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the ravenous heart of every person in this room. To be here midweek on a Wednesday night, they could be doing so many different things, but they're here because they want to know what you have to say. And uh, what you have to say is found in this book called the Bible. And we thank you for it. And we ask your blessing upon it, every person here as they go forth and they live this book out. Mm. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.